If you're visiting today, we're glad that you are with us this morning. We are looking uh, at the book of Romans. And so let me get you up to date as to what it's teaching in a sentence. Uh, Paul's point uh, so far is this, in the whole book of Romans, and really the Bible, is that the way of the law, the way of the law and the way of promise are mutually exclusive. At its very fundamental point. Because you see, uh, the way of promise is through grace. Okay? And that grace comes by faith. And the way of of the law says uh, that uh, things must be earned. And these two uh, ways, uh, the way of promise and the way of law, are diametrically opposed to each other. And that's why at the Protestant Reformation, uh, this idea of declared righteousness, imputed versus imparted righteousness, is so big. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I would like for us to consider why it is that faith in God's promises and not our own ability prove ourselves worthy to God, that God is, pleased, God is pleased with our faith in his faithfulness and he is not pleased with our constant effort of self-justifying our, ourselves before God. Let me tell you, God is pleased with faith that looks to Christ and that alone. Very clear in our text. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 4. If not, it's here in your bulletin. We write it in the bulletin every week because we believe this is the inerrant word of God. And so when I make a point, look to the text and see if the text says what it says. In hope, he being Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he gave, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who's delivered up for our trespasses trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Father, the gospel is counterintuitive to the way we think in this room. Our whole lives are around what we perform, whether it's grades in college, or working hard to make an income, or sometimes finding the approval of others who demand uh, uh, that you perform. 
But this is the glory of the gospel is, is, is opposite of that. It is your love and mercy toward those who come empty-handed. Those who are willing to admit that their sin far exceeds uh, even their own imagination, but your grace far exceeds any sin. And no sin is too little that it doesn't need to be forgiven. And no sin is too great in this room this morning that it cannot be forgiven because of your grace in Jesus Christ. Father, would you convert a sinner this morning? Maybe two. Maybe reconvert those who have lost sight, as it were, of the gospel. Cause them once again to hear the music of the gospel. Give me the grace to preach in such a way and them grace to hear in such a way that they, they grasp your love. And I ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen. If you were to read the Bible, uh, it is clear that it teaches us that we're to live by faith, that God's word is true, that the Bible is true. And the more we understand his word, then the more our faith in the God of the Bible becomes reasonable. If you read it, if you study it, you begin to respond to God's word the same way that Abraham did, then the Bible becomes even more reasonable because it becomes reality. And the more our faith responds to his word in space and time, the, the more we realize that faith in an infinite and reasonable God trumps reason. It trumps reason. Now, I'm going to tell you, reason is strong. And reason is not a bad thing. It's a good thing because uh, God is reasonable. But I wonder uh, this morning, including your pastor, how much we truly live by reason. And not by faith. So reason is good. It's fine, but it's limited. And that's why I titled this sermon Beyond Reason. It's not because I think Christianity is unreasonable. In fact, we worship a God who's rational, a God who's noble, a God that's reasonable. Uh, and in fact, I would say this to you this morning. If, if you're here today and you go, well, I, you know, I'm not a Christian. I don't, you know, I don't live by faith. The fact is we do. Your reason is leaning towards something that affects how you operate in space and time, how you do business, how you treat people, what you think about, what you do in your private time, what you do with your money, uh, you know, whether uh, the losses of football games uh, uh, devastate you or, or whatever it may be. But our faith is reasonable. But reason can never bring hope. Uh, reason can never answer ultimately the, the questions that we have in life. And, and there are a lot of questions uh, that we have to deal with in life. Reason can't really ultimately answer the question of origin. Where do we come from? It can't answer the question of, of meaning. Why, why am I here? What's the point? Can reason do that? No, reason cannot do that. It can give you some reasons. Or Morality which is a huge issue in our day, especially among us as Christians, where we're called to be a holy people because God's Word says that we're to be holy. And then you start thinking about it and you start responding to that, and it's reasonable. 
or destiny. It doesn't answer these questions. Reason cannot answer these questions. But at the heart of faith and a reasonable faith is hope. And we all need hope. The Logues do. As their son-in-law was sent home at 26 years old this past week for hospice. Reason can't answer that question. Well, what, what, how's reason going to help him? How about you today? You're at the age where you realize that uh, you're never going to be able to retire. You, you thought you could, but no, you're not. What's reason say to that? Does it give hope to those this morning who know that, you know, I'm going to have to work the rest of my life. I was going to live at least for five years without having to worry about these things. You, you don't have enough money to, you know, you got married and, and you, you hope that you could, uh, remember that movie with George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life and he wanted to lasso the moon, lasso the moon for, for Mary. Was that her name, Mary? And you know what? You can't do that. And there are a lot of husbands here that are hurting right now because you know what? They wanted to do that to you for you wives, but you know the economy went bad, or or maybe they just didn't have they weren't right thinking about this. And reason cannot solve that problem. You thought when you got married that your spouse was really somebody different than who they really are, and now you've come to the point where you go, oh, oh, this. So they're really like that, not who I wanted them to be. And, and what, what, is reason going to change your spouse? Does that give you any hope that you're going to change? Maybe you have a disease or maybe you have a sickness. Maybe you so goofed up things. You know you have. You goofed up your marriage or you've goofed up, uh, you hurt a relationship that you wish you could go back and ask for forgiveness and you'd be forgiven, but there's no forgiveness. And so you live the rest of your life not being forgiven by someone. And what does reason do for that? How does that help that? It doesn't. You see, reason tells you that if, uh, if you have hope, you're, that's probably unreasonable. <laughs> And you begin to be cynical about those who are you call the you think are peddlers of hope. And so you get into all these things that make all these promises, and they sound reasonable, but in the end they're just gold's dust, or fool's gold. They're just dust. And then you begin to impute that onto the word of God. You come to church on Sunday morning, you come to hear a preacher, and you begin to question the preacher. You begin to question the goodness of God. But you're here as habit. But my friends, God wants you to know the joy of the Lord. He wants you to know what it means that no matter what your circumstances are, that the object of your faith is Jesus Christ, who's raised from the dead. And so here's what I want us to see that I think is very clear from our text this morning, and, and, and that's this. That if we are to know the hope of the gospel as a powerful reality in our life, then we must, by faith, cast ourselves, and I do mean cast ourselves, upon him who is faithful. We see this in verse 18, if you look there. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he has been told. 
so shall your offspring be. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised We must put our faith in Him. So here's, here's the three things I want us to look at this morning that are, are all here. But they're all very important things to look at. Here's the first thing. Why God has chosen faith uh, as the instrument to give us hope. Why is it faith? Why is it not works? And that's the way most of the people in this world are going about, trying to get some kind of hope is through works. You're probably doing that. That's why you're in despair all the time. Secondly, why faith is God? Why, why faith in God is reasonable? Why is it reasonable? And then finally, I want us to see why our faith in God glorifies Him. Don't you want to glorify God to bring Him glory? And that's exactly what it said. Abraham's faith brought glory to God. Isn't that your desire as a believer today? Or if you're not a Christian, what what do you want to glorify? So the first thing to see is this. Why God, why has God chosen faith as the instrument to give hope? Why? Look at verse 20. Uh, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. God's promise. Now, what was God's promise uh, to Abraham? And uh, we're going to come to this in a minute. We're going to see this as an illustration uh, that Paul is trying to flesh out uh, the gospel. What's the promise? Well, he calls Abraham. Abraham was not looking for God. God God calls Abraham and he says, uh, Now, Abraham, you're going to have a child. And um, as our text tells us, the problem was that uh, Abraham was twice dead. He, He was 100 years old. And Sarah was decades uh, beyond the ability to produce a child. There had been no egg there, as it were, for almost 30 years, to put it bluntly. And yet he believed God's promise, that God was able to do what he had promised. And God did what he had promised, and, uh, and Sarah conceived And Isaac, a living person who, if we got in a time machine and went back, we would see this elderly woman having a baby, and that baby was Isaac. Miraculous birth. So why does Paul give this illustration here? Well, I need to go back for y'all that are visiting. You know what the book of Romans is about? The whole Bible is about? It is about your need to be a righteousness for, before God. Everybody here will stand before God according to the Bible, and you'll give an account for what you believe. And it's very important that you don't trust in what your parents say or somebody else says or some preacher says. Or What you need to trust is, is if your parents are saying what the Word of God says, if your preacher is saying what the Word of God says. But what does the Word of God say? 
it promises that, 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 you know what, you can't get a righteousness. You can't be right with God. There is no way that, that you, and the sign that you're sometimes not right with God is you're angry with everybody else because you're not right with God. But in chapter 1, Paul says this. His great thing statement is, but you know, there is going to be a righteousness that comes from God. And that's why he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it has a power to save because it is a righteousness a righteousness from God. And then we come to chapter 3, uh, right before this, and Paul is kind of, uh, uh, for, for two chapters, is basically saying, well, we have no righteousness. And then he says, but now there is a righteousness from God apart from the law. And then he tells us where it comes from. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he makes this very important point. He says, for all ascend and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift. Uh, it's a gift. You cannot save yourself, but God is willing to save. And so then he comes to the end of chapter 3, before he comes to chapter 4, our text, and he says, so where's their boasting? Who can boast if it's not of works? But it's all a gift of God and it comes by faith. Where's boasting? <laughs> he says, there is none. Now let me ask you, wouldn't that be freedom in itself? If you really get to the point and you're going, wow, this is unbelievable. I'm justified by, by, before God by what he does on my behalf. It has nothing to do or to do with anybody in here. So if you ever really, really feel bad about yourself, come to the gospel. Because you see, there's no boasting in the gospel. And so Paul, to make his point, says, well, what about Abraham? And so he gives this historical argument that Abraham was called before God, by God before the Ten Commandments and uh, that Abraham was justified uh, by faith. And what is more ridiculous than this story or, or, or could happen than Abraham having a child through Sarah? Because, you see, what Paul is trying to say, if you're, if you're going to boast, should, should Abraham boast about Isaac? Should Sarah boast about Isaac? Or is it because he put his faith in what God was able to do to bring something out of nothing because he promised it, which is the gospel? Now, here's what most commentators say about this section. Uh, they say this, that uh, faith corresponds to God's grace where law-keeping corresponds to work, effort, and ultimately misery. You see, faith looks to God because God is gracious. The reason it is faith is because faith points us not to a God who demands that you keep the law. You cannot do that. And the reason so many of you are unhappy or are miserable to this point sometimes is because you're not seeing that faith rests completely upon God's promise in Jesus Christ. So what do you do? You try harder this week and you come back madder next week. And you become angry with God. Why? Because you're, at some level you're still boasting in, in something that you do that that you're a good Christian, that you're a good person. But you know that's not true. 
And so it doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring life. But faith in God, and let me tell you, you let, me, let me tell you who I really want to hear this. You who feel like you're completely hopeless this morning. That you've so screwed your life up that there is no hope. Oh, listen, Sarah had no ability. Abraham had no ability. Abraham wasn't even seeking for God, and God comes to Abraham. And God makes a promise that through your seed all the nations would be blessed. And he believed in God's promise. And that promise is in Jesus Christ, my friends. John Piper, who was a Baptist minister, uh, put it this way. And I I think this is uh, um, well put. So now we see what Paul is up to in all his weighty writings. He has a precious aim in view. Your certainty that the promise of being an heir of the world will come true for you. An imperfect, stumbling, believing, justified, and sinning saint. Paul is not interested in stretching your brain with this kind of writing and thinking for no urgent reason. He wants you to be sure to know a guarantee to be certain of his promises. The people whose certainty about the promises of God is the most unshakable in the suffering and the sensuality of life. Suffering. We suffer, don't we? And sensuality is still an issue that we face. And yet, what is our certainty? That one day we're not going to suffer, one day that we won't struggle with our sensuality, that one day we won't struggle with our, with our sin in this life. No, it is God's promise that He will not forsake you. And friends, when you get hold of that, you will start changing. I will start changing. But until you believe the God Almighty, God in heaven, has sent His Son and promised you this morning that to whoever looks to Him shall be saved, and He will never leave you nor forsake you, then you have certainty. Works never bring certainty. I'll tell you what it does in churches, and I'll tell you what it has done in your family if you're not looking to Christ through His promise. It divides. It doesn't create peace. It creates dissension. Why? Because we begin to boast. Or else we go the other way. We go to despair. It's like, well, you know, man, I tell you what, that, that guy, he's, re- he's really godly. You know what? He, he has quiet time every day. But it never, it, never, it never unites. But you know what unites us? is faith looking to its object, who is Jesus. So that's why. That's why God has chosen faith. But I want us to, to see something else here in our text, and that is this. Uh, why faith is reasonable. I mean, I think we're already seeing to a certain extent why it's reasonable. Why? Because it looks to God. It looks to Christ. Um, But I want you to see verse 20, what he says in verse 20. I want you to look at this. He says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God is able to do that. Uh, John Stott on this passage, he says that Paul is moving from 
uh, the, uh, the nature of faith, uh, that, that is faith in Christ. But now he's moving here to what he called the reasonableness of faith. Though faith goes beyond reason, Stott says, it always has a firmly rational basis. It's, look, if you're not a Christian today, again, would you, would you at least admit that it's reasonable to consider that you're putting your life in something that you've reasoned to be true? You're banking your whole life on whatever your system of thinking is. And I'll say to you who are nominal Christians, or maybe you who, would, who on the one hand believe in, in theism, that God is sovereign over every detail of my life, but in pr- practicality uh, our lives are not exactly uh, working out uh, that way. But uh, that, that everybody is living by faith. But, but what Paul is trying to say here is that Abraham believing God was reasonable. I want us to see why it's reasonable in just a minute. But I remember when I was at Vanderbilt uh, as, as a chaplain. I was there, I think our first, it was my first year there. And uh, Blaine and Chris, y'all remember, Deborah, y'all remember, they used to do faculty and faith. The faculty member would come and share what they believed. And then the student could ask them why you believe what you believe. And we had Buddhists and Hindus and atheists. And we had everybody, philosophy professors. But they had the philosophy department, Dr. Locks came and he spoke on what he believed. And basically, you know what he said he believed? He said, I believe that Christianity is true. And he said, I want to tell you why I believe Christianity is true. It's the only rational, reasonable faith that's out there. He said, it makes sense. And he went one step further, which didn't hurt me starting an RUF at Vanderbilt because they had about 15 students there. And he said, and, and in fact, I'll say this about Christianity. He said, I think true Christianity is Calvinism. And he says, it's the only thing that makes sense. Because it talks about God who is sovereign. And then he said, yeah, matter of fact, the, the greatest theologian uh, in the world today is a guy named Alvin Plantinga, who was a professor at, uh, at Calvin College. And of, uh, of course, uh, well, I'll come back to him in a minute. But you, but you see, he's saying it's reasonable. And if you don't believe Christianity, at some point you've got to ask yourselves, uh, is what I believe reasonable? Is it really making my life work out good? Is it bringing hope to my life? Is it really answering these questions that I have? And I've got, you know, I don't need Christianity. I've got this thing figured out. And you know, it's really a blessing. But why is it, why is it reasonable? Well, it's, it's reasonable uh, ultimately because it's not about an argument, Okay. You've heard me say, you'll never come to Christ until, until, if you're looking for an airtight argument. There are no airtight arguments, but he is an airtight person. And then when you come to him, all of a sudden, all the arguments start making sense. Uh, we've talked about the Apostle Paul. He didn't believe in the gospel. He, I mean, he hated Christianity. He saw that it would, he would, it would destroy a Judaism that had come opposite of what he was saying it actually taught which is a Judaism that said it's by works, it's by being Jewish, it's by being circumcised. This is what makes you right before God. And, and the Apostle Paul uh, was, saw that Christ's resurrection went, meant that wasn't true, but he meets Christ. And when he met Jesus Christ, okay, on the way to Damascus, and that's reasonable to believe that happened, okay? It is reasonable. It did change his life, and it did change the history of the world. But when... Jesus appears to him and he meets Christ. 
He doesn't go, okay, 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 but, but what about uh, the Trinity? Uh, how can the Holy Spirit be a person? Uh, how can God be sovereign and man have free will? He met Jesus. So why is that reasonable? Well, let me tell you what makes it reasonable to believe this. Uh, it's two things. One is uh, because God is powerful. Two attributes. One, that he, he is able. Right? I mean, if God is not able, your faith means nothing. If God is not able to raise the dead, and a lot of, you know, and a lot of the commentators think that Paul is actually referring all the way back to the creation. You see, you know why there's something rather than nothing? Because God spoke and it came into existence. I mean, God spoke and, and also the material universe comes into existence. And you're, you're here, why? Because uh, God spoke, because God is able. But he says it very clearly, and we're going to look at this next week, him who is able to raise Jesus from the dead. If God is not all-powerful, then Christianity is not worth believing. In fact, I often ask people, I usually never get the right answer. So if I ask you this question in the future, you'll know the right answer. But I'll ask people, hey, you know, uh, what, if, uh, what if they came in and you were watching CNN on TV and, and, uh, and you discovered that Jesus' body, they found it. Everybody knows he exists. Everybody believes he existed, okay? Liberals, conservatives, moderates. Everybody, he existed. Okay, but what if they found his body? What, what should we do right now this morning, right now? Leave? Me make an apology for lying to you people and my wife and my children? I'd have to apologize to my children. Sorry, I've been lying to you. You, you see, but here's what I hear often. Well, you know, it, the, the, it's okay with me. I still believe what I believe. That's faith in the irrational. But faith in his resurrection. Now, do you believe that? Have you met this Jesus on the way to Damascus? Or is it just a theory to you? I'll tell you how you know it's a theory. Your life doesn't change. Your marriage just kind of stays where it is. You come here and you continue in unbelief. It's like, well, I believe these things, but it has no net sum game in how you operate during the week. But if you raise Christ from the dead, does he give us the Holy Spirit, friends? Does he give us the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit raise us spiritually from the dead like a womb with no egg? Yes. And when he does, he makes you like him. And, and you're able, you, you, have, you have power. You know why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. God is able to raise the dead. So that's one reason it's reasonable. This is why faith is reasonable. But the second reason is this. Because of God's character. God is good, friends. Jesus says to you this morning, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Well, number one, if he's just a good teacher, he can't do that. If he's God, he can do that. But let me tell you, not only is he all-powerful, and if all God were was powerful, then that would be a scary thing. He'd be a tyrant. But friends, you must believe that he is good.
My experience with that was when my brother committed suicide in 1985, my first month in the ministry. Here I'm talking to everybody about Jesus. My brother didn't believe in the gospel. He rejected the gospel. Powerful experience in my life riding back from Mississippi up to Greenville, South Carolina, thinking about my brother in a morgue who didn't know God. So here you go, Mr. Theologian. What are you going to say about that? What are you going to say to tell your college students? And as I'm wrestling with this, Calvinist that I am, Christian that I am, God said, how do you believe that I'm sovereign over this? My only answer was, Lord, if you're not, this is worse. But your word tells me that you're the God of the universe. You bring things out of nothing. And then his next question was, do you think I'm good? Hmm? Is that a legitimate question? Because here my brother, I, I, how, do I, how, do I, how, do I, how do I process this? And the only thing I could say is, Lord, I know you are good because if you're not good, this is worse and there's no such thing as goodness because it doesn't come from this concrete. It comes from God. Yeah, that's why it's reasonable. Do you believe that God is powerful? Yes, sir, I do. Well, let me ask you, do you believe he's good? Do you believe that Jesus is good? I don't know what your sin is. You've sinned this week. Matter of fact, you've sinned sins you don't even know you've sinned. But God is good. He is faithful. So we see why God has chosen faith as an instrument to give us hope. Because it ain't about works. There's no assurance there. There's assurance in God's grace. Why faith is reasonable. One last thing. Why, why our faith glorifies God? Now, don't you want to glorify God as a Christian? Or, or do you? The catechism question number one, the very first catechism question, is what is man's chief end in life? Man's chief end in life is to glorify God and, can anybody else tell me what that word is? What? Enjoy. So, well, I glorify God, but I certainly don't enjoy him. But that's the first question. Man's chief end is to glorify God, and uh, some people say, would say it would be a better translation to say, by enjoying him. By enjoying him. Where do we see this? Verse 20 again. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God. You see, the reason that we have life is to glorify him. And you might say, well, I, you know, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm doing that. And, uh, and therefore, uh, you just kind of trudge along. But in verse 20, we, we see that Abraham did, that he didn't waver. And the word there for, for waver is um, kind of double-minded, mixed of mind. He didn't waver. Let me tell you why he didn't waver. And the reason he glorified God is because uh, he began to know who God was. Uh, I, played, uh, I played football, and uh, I've, I've played on championship football teams. Like when we were kids, okay? Not in high school. But we were champions when I was nine years old. And uh, 10, some, somewhere in there. And I was awesome then uh, also. 
But my, my junior year in high school, we were 0-9. It's uh, November. We're playing Orangeburg, South Carolina, number one team in the state. We're on that bus, and uh, it didn't look too good. And uh, we got beat, I think, 60 to nothing that night. But I remember coming back, and you know, we got one more game after that. And it's November, and it's probably 30 degrees outside, and you're out there having to hit, and your hands are hurting, and your head's hurting, and you're hating every minute of it. And I was, you think about those guys who were, who were starting the playoffs and how much different they went to practice, right? Because they're 11-0, and, and they're beating the tar out of you. But you see, it changes everything about practice, the way we go about life. Why? Because... Those guys saw the trophy was right at hand. And what is our trophy? Our, our trophy is Jesus, to have him. And the more you enter into that, the more you begin to glorify God. And uh, you might go, well, help me on that word glor- glorify. Well, I've mentioned it before, but it's from the Hebrew word kaboth, which means weighty. And if you want to find out, what it is that you glorify and whether it's bringing energy to your life and hope in your life or whether it's not bringing that, the word means weighty. And whatever uh, has got you in its orbit is what you glorify. But you see, Abraham glorified God. In other words, his whole life was centered around God. And you know what it says in our text? It says that he grew in his faith. He not only heard the words of God, God told him to go and he went. And even when he went, he did, you know, God is so good, he says he didn't waver. But if you read it, we would say he wavered. Matter of fact, he got Ishmael from Hagar because he wanted to help God out. He didn't believe the promise of God. But Abraham grew. So let me ask you this, and then we conclude. Real practical, how are you going to grow? Are you growing in your faith? I'm going to tell you, there's only one way to do it. There's only one way to do it. Is you have to know who God is. And you know how you're going to know who God is? By reading the Bible. That's why we have that reading for the year. How are you elders going to be great elders? You're reading the Bible. Don't you want your elders, don't don't you know your elders, your pastors are reading the Bible? Would y'all like to know that? Regularly? How are you husbands going to really change? And be the men that God has called you to be. Who are men of faith. Who live a glorious life the way Abraham does. It is going to be reading the Bible. How are you ladies going to change? And quit putting your trust and your hope in your children or your husband. Or It's going to be reading the Bible. How are you ladies that are single or you men that are single? How are you going to really navigate life? I'll tell you how. You're going to know God through the Bible. If you're not going to do that, is there really faith that's there in the first place? Faith in God's word. Uh, let me close. Um, John Piper gives a good illustration, and he pointed it to children. So if you're, if you're like five years or older, or maybe younger, if you're, if you're an intellectual four-year-old, listen to him. But this will help your mommy and your daddy, okay? He was, uh, he was asking the question uh, to a child, how would you as a child glorify God? And he, he answers that by saying, well, just think about being at the swimming pool. 
And uh, you, you're, uh, there's a three-year-old child there, and he's got his little flappers on, you know, those things you blow up, put around so they don't sink the bottom. And your father jumps out there in the pool, and it's a public pool. <laughs> and he says, uh, jump. And uh, you're going to do one of two things if you're a child at that age. You're either going to glorify your father or you're not. And if you don't jump, then you embarrass your father. Because really what you're saying to your father is, you're not able. Or, I don't really trust you a whole lot. And so you're going, jump, jump. And you embarrass your father, you see. But you see, the way you can glorify your father is you jump. Why? Because your daddy's good and he's able. And you little children, learn something while you're young that these adults need to understand. You can trust this God. You can glorify this God because he keeps his promise. Now my older brothers and sisters in Christ, don't you know you're supposed to become like children as you get older? If you quit believing God is good, repent of that and come to Jesus and rest in him one glance at Jesus takes you to heaven but the gaze at Jesus brings heaven to earth don't you want heaven and earth start gazing at him he is the only savior the only hope let's pray God thank you for your word we pray now as we come to the Lord's table that you would uh, bless us with your presence. Father, I pray for any who are here whose hearts have gotten so hardened that even, even your word can't penetrate. Lord, your spirit's able. And I pray that they might be broken and to know that you love them, you care for them. Father, for those that don't know Jesus Christ here today, I pray that they might see that the only hope is in Christ. He gives us the Father we've all longed for. So Lord, would you meet with us uh, this morning? Would you change lives? Please change marriages. Make husbands more uh, like Jesus as they look to Jesus and read the word. and Make wives more like Christ as they read the word and look to you, have fellowship with others. Change children, Lord, as we look to Christ. And now we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.